This episode of Pick Up the Six podcast is in memory of Michael Murphy, Matthew Axelson, Danny Dietz, Jock Fonten, Daniel Healy, Eric Christensen, Jeffrey Lucas, Michael McGreevy Jr., James Sue, Jeffrey Taylor, Shane Patton, Seamus Gore, Corey Goodnature, Kip Jacoby, Marcus Morales, James Ponder, Stephen Wright, Michael Russell, and Chris Skirkenbach. Let every nation know, whether it wishes us well or ill, that we shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe, to assure the survival and the success of liberty. Brian Jodis here for another Pick Up the Six podcast. On June 28, 2005, four Navy SEALs, while on a mission to take out a high-ranking Taliban leader, were ambushed in the Hindu Kush Mountains of Afghanistan. Three of those men were killed. The fourth, the lone survivor, was Marcus Luttrell. My guest today is Lieutenant Colonel Jeff Spanky Peterson, an Air Force Reserve pilot who flew Marcus's ride out saving his life. The story of what transpired leading up to that moment, well, it's more than any one film can capture. I'm beyond honored to have Lieutenant Colonel Peterson as my guest, strap in for a wild ride. Lieutenant Colonel Peterson, sir, welcome to Pick Up the Six podcast. Good to be here, Brian. So you rescued Mark Wahlberg is pretty much <laughs> what you're yeah, telling me. I, meet him. I never got to meet him, but yeah, he, he sure did go, do a good job in the movie. That's for sure. So let's jump into it. it, it that moment in the movie, and we're going to unpack all of this and talk to you about what led up to that, the experience of that day. But in the movie, Lone Survivor, they put Wahlberg into the helicopter portraying Marcus Luttrell. The pilot looks over his shoulder, sees the Luttrell character, takes the helicopter off. So that's you. That, yeah, that was, but uh, I didn't look over my shoulder and he wasn't getting CPR uh, en route to the uh, transload. He was, he was just messed up pretty good. Yeah. He was, he was in a bad way as you guys rescued him again. We'll we'll, we'll talk through the details of that. I want to get to know you a little bit. So, so Jeff Peterson, how does Jeff Peterson end up in the air force and the air force reserve and ultimately find flying combat rescue missions during the war in Afghanistan. How, how do we get to that point? You know, um, I guess it is kind of a long story. Uh, I don't know. I've just always been fascinated with flying. Air shows is that I grew up in northern Utah around Hill Air Force Base. I would see the F-16s flying around and, and it was just cool. But I knew I would never join the military because Nobody's going to tell me what to do, you know, and this right. and that. I, I don't know. I just, I just wanted to do it. And um, I was actually serving a mission for my church for two years out in Pennsylvania. And one of my companions' brother was an Air Force pilot. Got me. That's when I started first thinking, hey, maybe the Air Force wouldn't be that big of deal, you know. I don't know. I was interested maybe in the airlines. And next thing you know, I. 
uh, moved down. My folks had moved while I was gone to Tempe, Arizona, came down to Arizona State University and went and talked to the Air Force ROTC recruiter, you know, and the rest is history. Got a pilot slot. It, well, kind of had a bump, which I thankfully had. They said, hey, due to Desert Storm, the drawdown, we're taking all these pilot slots away. Mm-hmm. And we're like, whoa, 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 whoa. We're under contract. We had to sign like all You had this. a spot ready to go. I had a spot. It was legal. They could, I couldn't get out of it, but then they showed me in the fine print and it was good early on before I was even in the Air Force to realize they don't really care about me. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm a number to them sure, and sure. I had to care about me more than them caring about me. So they said, choose a different career field. I chose maintenance, was a maintenance officer on the B-1 bomber in Abilene, Texas. And while I was there, uh, best friend still today, is a congressman in D.C. from Utah. He was a pilot flying the B-1, but he was prior Air Force helicopters. And I thought, hmm, I didn't even know the Air Force had helicopters. Right, <laughs> I, mean, right. I, was, I wasn't thinking helicopters, but he got me so jazzed on helos that when I went to pilot training, was flying the jets, they rack and stack us and, you know, I was number eight out of 25 and there was one fighter slot. So I chose helos. And so I was so thankful now looking back that I had, you know, 15, 20, almost, I was in 25 years. So over 20 years of helo flying and it's the best thing. And, and our mission these things we do that others may live is our motto. You know, we go out and save lives and make good things happen. You know, it's so interesting to me how the the course of action for your life sort of falls into place. And you know, you, you didn't have these grand uh, dreams growing up as a kid to be a pilot, and then things sort of shift in that direction. Coincidence, which I'm not a huge believer in, sort of takes shape. You know, as a man of faith, I believe that coincidence is God taking action, choosing to remain anonymous about. The results that ultimately happened there. So these wow. things kind of add up and then you find yourself active duty 12, 13 years, right? Then in the yeah, reserve. Almost, almost 13. Yeah, 12, 13 to get reserve. And I was going to go into the airlines. I was hired by some uh, tankers, KC-135 units, but I had four little boys, insurance, guard bombing. I don't know. I And then they just said, hey, they had this slot and they waved it in front of my face, come out to Cocoa Beach and you can have a full-time, you know, slot with benefits. And and I jumped in both the reserves and moved to Tucson and here I am. And here you are all these years later. All right. So they call you Spanky. With all due respect, sir, I think, I think <laughs> they nailed it on that one. Yeah. Why Spanky for those listening? Yeah. So, so Mark Bennett, uh, he actually got a B1 out of pilot training. Um, we were having a bonfire. Everybody was getting drunk. Seemed like I was the only one not drinking. And he came up to me and put his hand on my shoulder. And he's like, you look like Spanky. And then everybody around the fire laughed and laughed and laughed. And I thought, okay, yeah, whatever. And they called me Spanky. And then we are going to Fort Rucker, Alabama to learn how to fly helicopters. And four of those guys came with me and there was others and they learned Spanky. But then I thought by the time I go to Vegas for my first assignment, 
And, you know, and then they called and said, hey, can I talk to Lieutenant Peterson? And they're like, oh, you mean Spanky? So they thought, oh, this is a cool thing. And now it's like, whatever. Nobody even knows. It's weird. And nobody at work or in the military is like, hi, Jeff. You know, right. it's just odd. But yeah. So you know, my dad, 36 year Air Force veteran, he's got his call sign is Dice. He's got more Dice paraphernalia in his squadron bar that we call it in his house now. So Spanky. I think they nailed it on the nickname. That's me. And it's become who you are at this point, which is incredible. All right. So let's fast forward, but help me with the timeline here. So it's 2005. It's June 28th. War in Afghanistan is on. Essentially what happens is we've got a lot of activity happening in the region, but specific to the area where you guys were, we got to send these four SEALs in to basically take out this high-ranking Taliban bad guy. Is that a pretty accurate assessment as to where we're at on that day? On the 28th? Yep, on June 28th. Yeah. So we, uh, As far as I know, it, this was a classified operation, and we were a 1,000 miles away. We were down in Kandahar. This was happening all up in northeastern Afghanistan, uh, up by Bagram. So we were just sitting. The only... Thing we heard, we stayed up all night and slept during the day because we were utilized at night if needed because the army didn't have flares or uh, goggle experience mm-hmm. uh, like we did. So they would call us when it was too dark or the threat was too high. But it was pretty much a vanilla deployment. We even swapped out. It was a three or four month deployment and I just came in for the second half. I was only there for 60 days. Four SEALs into the Hindu Kush. They get compromised. Three of them get killed along the way. One is left. Between, and and given the, I guess, the proximity of where you guys weren't related to that, I mean, again, you're a thousand miles away. You're at a FOB. I mean, you're sort of carrying on life. You're waiting for if they're going to have to send you in for, for whatever could happen during these ongoing efforts. At what point between... We've lost guys. We've got a guy that we think is left there. We got to go get him. Can you talk us through what happens there? I mean, at, at what point are you brought in to a briefing yeah. room to where it's like, you guys are going in. Here's what we're going to do. Can you walk me through that timeline? So we heard, and it wasn't through our Intel channels. It was through like freaking CNN or something. As we were up at night that a Chinook crashed in Afghanistan. Right. Hmm. And I remember us asking our intel guys, could you look into this for us? And they couldn't find anything, which we thought was odd. Looking back now, it was classified. And mm-hmm. of course, they weren't going to say a 160th bird packed it in. So that's all we knew that night prior. And then we got breakfast and went to bed. And about midday, just after lunchtime, we got woken up with a call over the radios, magic, magic, magic. And I, the first thing that went through my mind was, whoever just did that's gonna get in trouble because that's real world. We yeah. don't use those code words right. on open air. Which means uh, basically we gotta go. It's hit the fan. We rushed to the talk. They said, grab a three day bag, you're going to Bagram. So a two ship, Skinny uh, and I, he was flight lead. I was number two this week, thank heavens. The week prior, I was flight lead. And we went up, it's about a four and a half hour flight up to Bagram. Got there about dinner time, it was getting dark. 
and they whisked us in behind the, the, the soft compound, which Air Force Rescue, and we, we don't usually play with the soft guys a ton. We augment at times, but they're pretty self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. So they brought us in. I thought it was interesting. They made us sit down and sign non-disclosure statements, all, you know, like 14 of us, before they'd even talked to us. And then they brought, uh, read us in on a classified op called Operation Red Wing. So that's when we heard about it, probably a day later. And they said, we think there's an American alive. We don't know if it's one of the SEALs. We don't know if it's somebody from the crew maybe fell off the ramp, like an anaconda. We, we don't know. And it might be multiple. All we know is we need you closer because it was still about an hour and a half flight from Bagram in a helicopter. So they pushed us down that evening to Jalalabad, which is right on the Pakistan border, an old Soviet era base they built up back in the eighties that had a few tents and some Marines. And that was it. And we just sat there and that was our job that night to listen to our SATCOM and wait for further words. Between that point and you guys going in to do this extraction, again, not really sure who you're going to pick up. It's interesting too, Spanky, if you think about it, like now we can look back on it. We know all these details. You can mm-hmm. read all these books, watch these movies, watch these documentaries and see the way it it really kind of played out. But between that, a first kind of read in and then moving you guys closer, what is then the process? We're going to get into the details of that night going in, picking them up. But what, what's that process between that yeah, initial no, reading? And- so we got there that night at, uh, at Jalalabad and we sat and we, we got a call about four in the morning and they had used various national assets, other aircraft or whatever. They triangulated three positions that they wanted us to go check out near the crash site. It was still dark. Weather was starting to roll in, but... Um, we went and checked these sites out. So it was within a click, a kilometer from the crash site up in the Hindu Kish. And what what was happening, why they thought it was American, because someone was clicking on the rescue freak, on guard, in the open, no crypto, just clicking answers yes and no when asked. So they thought it was an American, but especially as rescue guys, we don't want to get lulled into a SAR trap that, you know, they use our devices to bring us in and then they take us out. They've already proven they could take a helicopter out. So why would a good guy not be talking? Because even if it was a bad guy, even if he knew English, he still would sound like a bad guy. He wouldn't have fluent English like we're used to hearing. So we were a little anxious. So we went in, Skinny went down low. I was up high. We had dual miniguns at the time. And I was just doing overwatch for him as he was down low and slow. Speed is our friend in a helicopter because we're not that fast. But when you're hovering and going below 30 or 40 knots down low, you're just a sitting duck for RPGs, small arm fire, stuff like that. And usually we train for co- with code words, this and that, but There was none of that. It was on guard. Hey, this is Air Force Rescue. We're here to pick you up. Show yourself. Signal us 
this, that. We could hear faint clicks and we couldn't see them. We couldn't see whoever was doing that. And then the worst time in the world to fly with goggles is at sunset or sunrise. So even as the sun starts coming up, it's so bright that it washes the goggles out. You lift the goggles up and it's pitch black. You put them down, it's washed out. It's, it's not a good time to be flying. And then next thing you know, now it's daytime. Now we see bad guys or whatever walking around looking like farmers and wondering what we're doing, you know, and it, it's not good. It's not good. We're hanging it out, this, that, and we finally, uh, unfortunately, bingo out. We run out of gas right. and we have to leave. So this so is an extraction point, yeah, right? This is essentially trying to figure out where the yeah. heck you guys are going to go to try to find this guy. Yeah, exactly. And to see where the guy is. Right. And, and you know, we're, we're thinking there is an American down there that needs us, but we can't see him. He couldn't signal us for whatever reason. We go back. They said, get some gas at the mouth of the, the river valley. Or, or no, come back. We bypassed the gas this time and went to um, Jalalabad, but the tanker had already left. So there was this big confusion about gas, this, that. We're not going to a fob. We have the land now lights. We're out of gas because we waited extra long. And they said, okay, well, while we figure the gas thing out, you guys have been up forever. Go get some sleep, get some chow, and that's it. And we'll send you back out. So, so there's I'll all this. So we spent that day there at the fob resting which was by a busy road, right by Pakistan. It wasn't a really secure area. We weren't even that comfortable. Chow was Pop-Tarts and Red Bull. There really wasn't anything there. And so we tried to get as much sleep as we could. And right about at dusk, another schnook came in, a fat cow with bladders of gas in, filled us up. Now it's dark. And we're like, okay, so what do you want us to do? And they're like, since you're there, why don't you guys stay for another night and we'll see what happens. All right. So as we're figuring all that out, right, as we're getting ready to essentially keep moving you down, down the, the road here to, to make this ultimate extraction point, talked about a few things I want to pull out. I want to take a quick pause here. Take us back in time a little bit. Okay. So you do all this training in the mountains of Arizona that essentially become part of uh, what you're going to be hopefully prepared for if and when that time is called to you. I want to talk about two things first, though. You said we. So who's this crew? Special ops guys go in. They end up in some real bad trouble. Special ops guys try to extract them. They end up in some real bad trouble. And we end up with Air Force reservists and their crews going in to make this ultimate pickup of this lone survivor. So who are these guys? Who's making up these crews? For my crew, my co-pilot was uh, Dave Gonzalez, and he was a Border Patrol pilot, probably had twice as many hours as I did at the time. Not in the Black Hawk or the Barbarian of the Black Hawk, but a very good pilot, plenty of experience. My FE, uh, Mike Cusick, he, was a, he did two tours in Vietnam. He was gray hair in his 50s, late 50s, probably like me right now, you know, I thought he was so old back then. <laughs> um, but but he he was cool in the gang, dude. He had been to the dance, you know, where yeah. this was a lot of our first combat deployments. My gunner, he was a college student and he was a little on, on pins and needles. 
and my two pararescuemen, uh, one had just graduated from medical school and the other one had a tremendous experience as a uh, paramedic and had got out and was a reservist. So part-time, you know, doing that kind of stuff. So they were stacked. Skinny's aircraft had the same thing. We had his co-pilot actually was a Southwest Airlines pilot. Um, and uh, Skinny had been flying and was a weapons officer, had tons of experience. And his back end, same thing, reservists with a lot of experience. So the cards were stacked in our favor that day. Yeah, I but think. To, you know, to the casual listener, that might sound like a rather random grouping of guys that are going to be a part of this extraordinary feat that they're going to be asked to do. But if you think about the time and place that we're in in the world, and correct me if I'm wrong, we're living in this post-desert storm world. And I think one real realization that we had as a United States military was we got to ensure that our reservists, if we're going to be asking them to be inserted into these uh, positions and situations, have to be trained up incredibly high for what could happen to them. So again, it sounds like, well, this is a rant. You got a doctor, you got a college student, you got a guy who's in Vietnam, you got an airline pilot, all these sort of random folks coming together to make up these highly trained and skilled crews. So how much training goes into the work that you guys were preparing to do? We have the exact same training criteria and currencies as our active duty brethren. So when I was on active duty, I had the same tables of currencies that I have to stay current and qualified in. Otherwise I go non-current. And as reservists, uh, we all want to serve our country. Some of us were full-time reservists, some were part-time reservists, but even as a, as a aviator in the reserves, you still have to come in more than one weekend a month in order to maintain not only currency, but proficiency. And we, we made it a point uh, here in our unit in Tucson to stay very proficient, utilize that time to train for a disaster. And hopefully when it comes up, it's not that big a deal. We had trained in the mountains. We had trained doing brownout after brownout after brownout, but we were just outside of Tucson. But we'd do water work in case we had to be in the Gulf, but we're in a Lake Roosevelt up by Phoenix or out in San Diego. You know, I mean, there's just, you just train, 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 train. And quite frankly, a lot of people in the military reserve or active duty guard, they train their whole career and never, you know, but that's what we're here for is to train, to be that fighting force when called on, hopefully we'll get what's needed done. When you, I'm going back a little bit more too. When you walk in, uh, when they essentially brief you on this classified mission, what, what are the what are the eyeballs of the SF guys, the active duty guys look like when they're looking at you, a white haired guy that has two tours in Vietnam, come walking in <laughs> to, yeah, to be I, part of this? One, they all had beards and we didn't. Right. Um, so we stuck out like a sore thumb. And right at first, they probably didn't know we were reservists, but I do know Skinny was working with the captain over the seals to explain and express to him our combat capability. Because what we were first sent up there for 
was just for Overwatch, for our pararescuemen, for, mm -hmm. for possibly being there while they send in another Chinook for the pickup. That, that's kind of what they were thinking. They were just down an aircraft. They needed augmentation, but, but we were still kind of in the peripheries. You mentioned goggles. I want to talk about those because I think they play a pretty critical role in what ends up happening here. And as you talk us through this story, what we're going to find out is you were prepared to pick up the six through this because of all that training that you talked about, all that training, all that training, all that training. You might never need it, but in this moment, you are. You even talked about brownouts. I think that's going to be an important piece as to, to what happens. So mm -hmm. There's this incredible orchestra of all these elements that have to take place from the four seals going in, three being killed, one being left. And again, we, we, we know we got somebody down there we got to go get. So now let's jump into, all right, it's go time. We are going in to extract whoever we're going to get at the time. Can you walk me up to where we get started with that? Yeah, so we, 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 we stayed in Jalalabad. That night, we went and picked up a village elder that had hiked out and said, hey, we got an American in our village. Here's a note he gave us, an isoprep, you know, and we're like, well, okay, was that tortured, you know, this, that, but we started realizing it was Marcus, but we didn't believe him. We didn't know if he was dead or if he was tortured, or if he still was alive. So we went and got him, and the problem was they had told us while we were sleeping, the clicking had stopped. So we thought, this isn't good. This isn't good. We drop them off, we head back to Bodrum. This was the first time that we had really been able to get real chow. Remember, it was kind of slow, so I'd been calling my wife every day, and then suddenly I stopped, so she's freaking out. Mm -hmm. I what's going on, you know, this and that. So we were able to go in, they said, get cleaned up, we got a brief coming this afternoon. That's when, it all hit the fan. We went to the brief. They came in. They said, the Chinook's going to go in. We've got a 20-man soft team. We've already hiked into the village. He is secure. He is alive. He is safe, but he's coming out tonight. So what's going to happen? Chinook's going to go in, get the 20 plus the survivor. We're going to be five miles off orbiting in case something's needed. Come back for the for the final brief in, a, in an hour. We come back. A lot had happened in that hour. There was a second American in a village 10 kilometers away, blah, 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 blah. Um, it, 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 it really was nothing, but they thought that it could have been someone or a Marine that had gone missing three weeks prior. They, they didn't know, da, 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 da. So I'm going to hike the 20-man soft team to that other village. Now I'm only picking up one guy. Do I need a waste to Chinook just to get one guy, or could I keep, be putting more rangers and, and support personnel up on the mountain? And that's when they looked over to us and said, 60s, you got to pick up. And quite frankly, I really wasn't listening that well. Remember, I was number two. Mm -hmm. And so now all the tension comes to us. We had A-10s, we had a gunship, and we're kind of freaking out. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, okay, you know, we're not really into these pre-planned things. You know, we're more of just go in, do it, and get out. Yeah, it was, it was, it was kind of odd. Yeah. Um, and that's when skinny, when they started talking all these tactics, this, that, and finally the gunship's guy. Hey, speak English. You know, he didn't like all this weapon school stuff back and forth between the A-10s and Skinny. And that's when he said, hey, I'm going to do a trailer spooky, meaning he's going to send Spanky in while I, he does armed overwatch for various reasons we train to. And 
I started freaking out a little bit. I mean, you know, I mean, just thinking about my wife, my kids, my crew, my this, holy crap, I'm going to screw up. You know, I mean, everything goes through your mind. Um, went out, told the crew, hey, we're not support anymore. We're, we're actually going in for the pickup. And we get the aircraft ready. Everybody's high-fiving. Everybody's excited. And I'm just pacing back and forth, just going over all the details, making sure I've got enough gas, enough power, my crew, the weapons. You've got your whole mind is just going a little crazy. Plus, it's an hour-plus flight, even down to Jalalabad. So you got all that extra time. Just all that time, just quiet. You know, I, I remember my gunner, the uh, college student, he kept asking, what can I shoot? What can I shoot? What can I shoot? And I'm like, dude, 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 dude. We're not shooting nothing, dude. There's 20 Americans around this village, but it's going to be easy. We're going to, it's going to be um, a single IR strobe light marking the objective. Skinny's going to be over top and we're going to go in and pick this guy up. And it was until about we checked in with the A-10s right past Jalalabad, coming up to the uh, Asadabad and the, the river valley there in the Hindu Kush. That's when it just seemed like it, it just, I, I stopped thinking about my family. I stopped and I started focusing and that was right at our IP, the initial point, our last turn before we're going to objective, we're five minutes out. We train plus or minus two seconds. So we're going to be on the ledge that we had satellite imagery of where the objective was at 1130. 11.25, H minus five, they were going to be lighting this whole mountainside up with A-10s, the gunship, and just doing diversionary strikes, possibly hitting bad guys that they'd had cred uh, footage of. But it was going to be a big show. They were very interested on our ingress and egress routes. So were we. Um, and that had already started. We saw the light show up in the mountains. Um, weather was kind of moving in. It was super cloudy. There was some lightning. Um, and you're just like, okay, this is it's go time, you know. And we're climbing up these steep mountains. And... Uh, we thought it was going to work out. The gunship was going to turn his light on at H minus 30 seconds. So he was going to turn on an infrared lantern to help us out because it was so dark, we asked. That didn't work because of cloud cover. The single IR strobe now was every swinging soft guy on the ground turned on his strobe light on the helmet to say, hey, friendly, don't shoot over here. So we just have strobes all around this ledge and village you know we're talking four mud huts on the side of a steep slope with a terraced um where they cultivated crops primarily poppy i think you, you know you said so. a few times in there we thought we thought oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. right so yeah. so and if you yeah, go no. back and and watch in the movie lone survivor which gr great movie and a lot of things have to happen flair for dramatics when you're creating a film you know in the movie it's daylight. There's an on-ground gunfight going on, but essentially you see these rangers, you see the helicopter come in, it lands. There's a big dramatic moment where Wahlberg, as Luttrell's character, says goodbye to the people that were caring for him. Then they put him on, they sort of take him out. It's all very dramatic. 
in reality, it's the dark of night. You've got all these activities. You've got a big gunship over top. You've got A-10s that are flying around. you got all these Rangers on the ground. you got Skinny in his aircraft doing his thing. And then you guys are essentially going to come in. And I know there's more detail to it. Land, pick him up and go while all these other things are happening. The first key differentiator is, you said we thought, we thought. There's a lot of things that were supposed to happen that didn't. But the first part is dark of night. Dark of night. You mentioned goggles before. These are goggles that you wear to be able to see in the dark. You would train, uh, I think you've got about 3,000 flight hours in helicopters. Is that correct? Yes, sir. How much of that was at night? How much of that was with goggles? I think easily close to half of that is uh, nighttime. And Less than five hours, I think, is unaided. You can count. You can count quickly yeah, in your hand. brain. Yeah, one hand. So, so all we ever do is train with goggles. There are security blanket at night. Why in the world would you ever fly at night with gog without goggles? But when it's super dark, it's you know you can't wear them into a cave. They won't work. They amplify light. So if there is no light, there's nothing to amplify. Um, there wasn't much light. There is no cultural lighting. There is no street signs or even star light. There was no light. It was butt crack dark. So this big gunship essentially, if all goes as planned, is gonna drop this massive light down onto the LZ, the landing zone, which, but you guys would be the only ones who could see it. So it's not like it lights up the village. Yeah, all the villagers can see it, right? It's got an infrared filter on it. It's a big lantern, kind of like those at the mall when they have the uh, open houses or the car dealerships. So answer um, me this. What what did go right on the way in for this pickup? And how much adversity did you hit along the way before you even landed to pick them up? Yeah, so, so in route, I said we met up with the A-10s. One of the A-10s... Um, had a problem with his targeting system. So he slipped everything by five minutes. So we had to go up the valley and try to turn around in this very tight canyon that we two helicopters couldn't turn around in. And we had to do that almost blind. We slipped that. So that had already gone bad is that we're working through um, uh, aircraft issues already. The primary frequency was VHF secure. So we had to relay all our stuff through another aircraft to the ground guys. We couldn't speak directly to the ground guys. So that wasn't good. Um, the single strobe in the LZ was, was terrible because now everybody, they didn't get the word that that was the identifier for the landing zone. So they all turned on their IR strobes out of safety so they didn't get schwacked. Um, the gunship tried to do his light. It just looked like lightning in the cloud. Our call sign was halo. I remember vividly halos, negative burn, negative burn. And I just, my heart sank that, holy crap, dude, I can't see Jack. I don't even know where the landing site is. We're trying to do that. And just about when all was lost what did go right and 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 
I, I am like you, a, a man of God. I, I really think timing was in Marcus's favor because the A-10s heard all this commotion going, freaking out, in route, dropping bombs, strafing. One of them rolled in, in the weather, came down low and put his targeting pod or laser onto the objective. And it looked like a flashlight from God just Right through the heavens, yep. Right down on this ledge. There probably was a strobe in the middle of it. And it just gave us instant essay. We saw it. We're coming up. Skinny peels off. I start slowing down. I do a pedal turn. And I'm like, and then it went away. We watch his gun footage later. He had been doing it for three or four seconds prior. And then a gap in the clouds opens up and it allows it. And then He's continuing, and then the clouds come, and he still continues, but it was just when we needed it. And I was like, holy cow. There we go. That's our spot. Maybe it's going to work. You know, we start getting closer. We see some guys on the ground. One of the soft guys had his laser on his gun that was sweeping the ground and the rock face next to us. It was very helpful to kind of show us the outline of the LZ. It was just a very tight ledge built into this cliff face, if you will, with some mud huts. It wasn't that big of a thing. So adversity almost every step of the way, but you keep going. You got to keep going. Oh, yeah. Right? What are you going to do? You can't. We got to keep going. We got to get this guy. We got to keep going. We've got checks and balances. If this doesn't happen here, this, that, but it, it is hard. You know there's an American that is expecting you to come and get him. And um, what we didn't want to do was sit there near the crash site in bad guy country, up high in the mountains, orbiting, Mm -hmm. trying to, you know, turning our lights on, trying to find this stupid thing. Uh, But it worked out, you know, and that's why we train. We train to to think and act and react on the fly. because, you know, we might be flying. We don't even know where our survivor is. A lot of times they'll send us out before they even have data because we're so slow. They know it's going to be an hour and a half flight mm-hmm. and we're getting updates as we get closer. You've jumped over hurdle after hurdle to get there. This A-10 angel <laughs> shines yeah. the light down for you. You finally are like, okay, we got our spot. We know where we've got to land. But before you can even land one more hurdle, is thrown at you in this massive brownout and everything goes dark. What happened? Yeah. I hadn't really thought much about my lighting plan. Not that it would have helped much anyways, because the gunship was going to light it up like a football stadium. So I wasn't that nervous to a certain degree. And the pictures, we had very good imagery. It was a green field looked like turf. And I'm, well, it had like, been this is going to be sweet. We're going to yeah. land. We're going to pick them up. Yeah. We're going to roll out. Yeah. So it wasn't green. It was brown. And as I started getting closer, it was a, a newly cultivated field. I got through Translift and started. Uh, there was a tree behind me. I had to worry about my tail rotor, and I was coming down. And as I hit about you know thirty feet. Next thing you know is I'm in some hellacious brownout in the mountains, in bad guy country, by very steep mountain 
at ledges and cliffs and that's not good. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever been in a car wreck or a traumatic thing. It just seemed like everything kind of sort of went into slow motion. My guys in the back are laying down looking, they can see straight down, but with my cockpit, we are flying with the doors on at the time, which we shouldn't, we've since started flying combat with the doors off because you can see so much better. I didn't want to drift into that rock face of the ledge that was to my left. To the but left to of my you. right was, you know, hundreds or a thousand foot drop down this steep ravine. And, you know, I, I can't hover in a brownout, you know. And that's when I that's when I really thought, okay, I screwed up. And quite frankly, start thinking about my wife and kids again, the failure. Marcus on the ground, who's going to get him now? Who's going to get all of us now? Are we going to die? You know, all this is going through when off in the distance, probably about 50 feet in front of me on that ledge on the upper side, I could see some kind of bush or branches or something was growing up there, a big weed, I don't know, that was hanging off the edge like, I don't know it reminded me of these hanging pots my mom would put on our back patio. And my rotor wash was whipping it around. And I could see that movement and those weeds through straight ahead, but I couldn't see the left, couldn't see the right, couldn't see the ground. But my mind instantly could tell now left, right, up, down, and my hover, boom, I'm good. Once I got in a solid hover, my FE was able to call me to the ground we land, we kick some water out to the right for the guys that are going for the hike tomorrow and PJs jump out to the right. Now I'm just waiting. Now it's their turn. Come to find out there was what we thought possibly two bad guys rushing the helicopter from the rear near their tail rotor, which isn't bad and you never rush a helicopter. They were dressed in Afghani garb and they almost shot them both until clearly a third person behind him that was an American special forces in uniform. They held off, thank heavens. I mean, they had the red dots on their chest. It was Marcus that had been, you know, and we didn't even know he could walk. He, he had a broken back, multiple gunshot and shrapnel wounds, this, that, but he was not gonna let this opportunity leave. And him and the shepherd that helped uh, rescue him or rushing the helicopter. They quickly authenticate, throw him in the back. And I just hear, go, go, go. I pick up and dive off the ledge into the black hole. Skinny follows, gunships, A-10s. We all start heading out down the mountain and back down to Jalalabad where the transload was. By the time you put that pavehawk on that dirt field, to where you've got Marcus Luttrell on board and you dive back off that mountain. How long are we talking here? Not that long. It seemed like an eternity. Um, I remember yelling at my FE, asking him why in the crap did he get me so close to the ledge? Because I couldn't even see dirt out my window. And he's like, sir, I knew we were okay. You didn't need that information right now. 
it was okay. So I remember being pissed at him and this and that, but it was, it was probably less than 30 seconds, maybe 45 at the most, probably 30 seconds, but it seemed like an eternity. We didn't want to stay around um, too long. That's for sure. Yeah. The other guys in the air and on the ground to deal with that. Your mission was to go in, land, pick this man up and bring him home. So in that 30 seconds or so that you're on the ground and you have them, you jump off the cliff, you're heading back, the cavalry's heading back home. You said on the way in, you had all this time to think, but then once it was go time, you just locked in on the mission. You mentioned your family again, as you're in that brownout, which feels like minutes, it's really probably 10 or 15 seconds yeah. before you lock in on that plant. At what point on the flight back does the weight of all this hit you? So the mission actually was continuing. Unfortunately, we didn't know this until we'd already taken off. The shepherd or gulab that had rescued him or brought him to the village jumped on the helicopter with him and the PJs allowed it. So we had him on. We expressed that to headquarters. They did not want him going to Jalalabad. They said, drop him off at the bottom of the valley at Asadabad. So we had to land drop him off, then took off and flew the other 15, 20 minutes back to Jalalabad, where there was a waiting uh, MC-130 Talon with doctors, nurses, and this and that. And at that time, we landed at the rear of that heli- uh, that aircraft that was basically right there on the runway. He wasn't walking now. PJs were carrying him, basically. Collapsed. That's the first time I actually saw him out, out the left window, collapsed on a cot. And before the tail had even got very far off the ground, they were taxiing and getting ready for takeoff and was off in probably less than, you know, 30 seconds too. Because they could get back to Bagram, back to a hospital way quicker than slow helicopter boy. We went, there was a second, now we were the... Uh, show so they had another tanker there waiting for us we landed it at the rear was able to get get hot gas from them and then we repositioned back into the spot where we were waiting for those couple nights and as the aircraft were shutting down that's when the mission was over and that's when it was it was the weirdest thing i haven't experienced it ever since i i think when you're so hopped up on adrenaline and this and that, it just left my body and I visibly just started shaking. And I was like, okay, this is weird. They're all hooping and hollering in the back. Perchecki, one of my PJs came slamming the window. Spanky, you're the man, you know? And I'm like, dude, they have no freaking idea how close they are, were to balling it up there. You know, I mean, it was, it was kind of stupid and dicey and all I wanted to do, it sounds cheesy, was talk to my wife, but I knew it wasn't possible. We're in Jalbad, out in the middle of nowhere, this, that. We even go into the talk to go get some more Pop-Tarts and Red Bull, I guess, you know, because they wanted us to wait there until daylight. That's when one of the Marines like, hey, dude, we got a sat phone in the back if you want to use it. So I remember I went back there and called my wife and she wasn't at home. I called her cell here in Tucson and she was at a fabric store. We'd just built a house and was getting some material for curtains. And she was excited to talk to me. She wanted to know if in our code word, was I with Mike? 
one of our friends that was on Chalk Tree that was back at Bagram. She knew if I was with Mike, I was at a big base, secure, this, that. If I was out and about, that means I was in the middle of nowhere and it wasn't good. I said, no, I'm out and about. She was asking all these questions, this, that. And she just said, I just kept saying, everything is really, really good. It's really, really good. I guess I kept saying that. And then finally she pauses and said, did you just do what you've been training your whole career to do? You know, I almost get emotional talking about it because it was, it was a, it was a pretty intense mission. And I started getting emotional. I was like, Penny, there are like freaking Marines right outside this talk. Don't get me going. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Sorry. But it was great to talk to her you know, where in the world do you get to do that? You know, they used to write letters or whatever, but that's what I needed at the time. And it just brought everything into perspective, you know, and that's what it's all about. That's our mission. We go in and we save, we put our behinds on the line to save other Americans. We went in, I rightfully quickly volunteered to say, Hey, I'll watch the radios back at Bagram and Skinny and the other aircraft went in and picked up, uh, you know, Medal of Honor recipient, Mike Murphy and Danny Dietz. It took us a few days to find uh, Axe or Axelson, but it was just great being a part of it and, and just being a small part of it because there was so many ground forces, so many other air assets, army helicopters, A-10s, F-16, lots of aircraft that helped keep him safe and helped do that so we could then go get him. And now he's happily married in Texas with two wonderful kids. So I want to talk about him a little bit too, because he's become just this incredible icon, almost larger than life to an extent. You know him on a personal level. President Kennedy said, let every nation know whether it wishes us well or ill, that we shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe to assure the survival and the success of liberty. In that moment, pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship to go get one seal out. All of that to retrieve the three that he lost, his buddies. And the 16 others that went in after them that were part of that Chinook crew. That is incredibly powerful that shows the extent at which our nation will go to retrieve our own. You're part of that moment. How much has that become part of your life since that moment? Um, I, I, I did two, two additional uh, deployments to Afghanistan. Um, and we did tons of missions. Uh, they just didn't make a movie or write a book about them, you know. Um, a lot of them weren't as dicey as that, but there were others that were super scary and super intense. Um, but we enjoyed it. We, we volunteer to do this. Nobody has a gun to our head making us do it. It's a volunteer force. And we do it out of the love of that wonderful flag that 
people sometimes don't respect, in my opinion, at, at times. We do it for our country. We do it for our neighbors. We do it to keep America strong and that superpower that we need to stay, you know, because it is true. There is so much um, good about the United States military that we're a formidable opponent. But as President Kennedy says, we'll do whatever it takes in order to get our guys back. And we do still do that. And, and, and quite frankly, I talked to a lot of my fighter friends. They know if they got to jump out that I'm going to come and get them because they might not have that same feeling about going on that mission if they didn't know that rescue or some plan was to get them out. Have you guys been able to stay in touch? Uh, you know, oh, yeah. as, as, as being the guy who, who flew the ride that pulled him out. Uh, and again, I talked about him being, uh, you know, somewhat larger than life. And you're right. Such a down to earth guy, uh, incredible love of country, raising his family in Texas. But have you guys been able to, to keep in touch and, and, uh, and check in with each other every now and then? He went after five years, they did a big lone survivor event in Houston, was able to land the helicopter, was supposed to go to Minute Maid Park, but the major league baseball didn't want us to land on the grass. So we landed in the street out in front of it. And we brought the actual helicopter that flew in and picked him up. He thought that was super cool, but was able to meet his family, his wife. Uh, he didn't have kids at the time, um, but it really brought, we, we usually don't see a lot of these people or patients. We, we, I went to an Amtrak derailment near Kingman, Arizona one time and brought in tons of people that were messed up and you never hear about how they did or if they made it or this, that. But fortunately on this one, uh, Marcus and I have been in touch. We keep in touch. He usually gets in touch with me around anniversaries or things when he's thinking a lot about his family and life. But just, I mean, it's probably less than two weeks ago, he just called me up and just, we chatted for about a half hour to just catch up. And he always says, thanks, bro. And I'm like, you freaking owe me, dude. I always <laughs> tell him that just to give him crap. And he's like, I know, I know, I know. But it's it's fun. It's fun to mess with him. Lieutenant Colonel Peterson, we are incredibly grateful for your service to our nation. Uh, I'm excited in the coming weeks here, we're going to hear more stories like this. So we're going to talk about an airman that was shot down during the Korean War over China. And it took us 52 years to get the intel we needed to find him and to get him home. But it proves that our nation will go to the end of the world to ensure that our people come home, whether it's five days after they're ambushed from 28 June to essentially the 4th of July, or whether it's 52 years. And we're excited to, to share those stories. Sir, we're so honored to have had you on this show today. Well, hey, Brian, appreciate the time. He's Lieutenant Colonel Jeff Spanky Peterson. I'm Brian Jodas, and this has been Pick Up the Six Podcast.